Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg. And joining us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello, Jason Rugg. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good. So happy to see you. Been missing you. Yeah, it's it's. I'm happy to be back. <laughs> and uh, we also are joined by Robbie Davis. Hey, hey, good to be back for a third time now, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think yeah. so. Happy to have you. Hi, Robbie. But we made it official on the second, so yeah. <laughs> I'm here to stay. <laughs> and then, actually, I, we didn't discuss. Are we are we introducing our extra guest this time? We are. Okay, yes. okay. Sometimes we like get into a film update, then we go to that. I just, I, I don't know. It's <laughs> and we're also joined by Zach Callahan. Yeah, my my third Pete as well now. So I'm I'm pretty much a recurring guest too now. So yes, you are. You are a recurring guest. Yes. Uh, we are so happy to have you here, Zach, um, otherwise known as Cal. So sometimes I call him Cal. Sometimes I call him Zach. He answers to either one. Uh, he and there's is... only one special guest on the episode, just in right. case anybody's confused. Christian, do you want to introduce Zach and who he is and for people yeah. who aren't sure? Yeah, absolutely. So Zach is uh, somebody that came to the documentary First World Oh, gosh. I don't know how long. How long has it been, Cal? Two years almost now. Yeah, a while. So he came through this circuitous route, and we've interviewed him before. So, you know, you can listen to that uh, on another episode as well. But, you know, he's here. We'll go over it. Uh, A friend of his, I think, um, mother listened to a podcast who talked to his friend. The friend volunteered for a while. Then he got a real job, uh, but he brought Zach on and said, hey, they really need a writer. Zach had just graduated from film school and script writing, wants to do uh, script writing as a living. Uh, it really ended up being a very good fit because I needed somebody to to write. And I love giving uh, people starting out in the industry sort of a, an opportunity to grow. And um, man, he's just been killing it. Um, he came on and first started helping us with the Brave Dutch and fleshed out our pitch packet for that, which helped us to um, you know, start trying to get funds. And then the Carenton project came along and he just dove right into that. And I'm not sure he wanted to start out writing documentaries, um, but now that's even turned into uh, writing a pilot for the Brave Dutch original, you know, episode. Uh, so, uh, but he's also pitched in all over the place, writing for newsletters and just, uh, you know, other content stuff for social media. Um, but I've loved watching him step into this role of of a real screenwriter, uh, and he's just stepped up every single time. Happy to have him on the team. Uh, he did go with us to Normandy, and I strongly recommend take your writer with you, particularly when you're doing a doc. Uh, he was really invaluable in helping um, in so many different ways, and I can let him talk about that as we talk about story today, which is what our subject is. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, so I think before we, we get into story, you wanted to give us a film update, right, Christian? I did, but I'm going to turn the tables on you because I know our listeners love to hear from you guys and what's going on in your world. And I'm afraid if I start talking about what's going on with the film update and the story stuff, we'll run out of time. So I would love <laughs> to hear what's going on with you and Robbie in your own personal worlds. I know you're both involved in media stuff and you got your own careers going. So tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Uh, Jason, why don't you go first? Well, I've kind of been 
out of it the past month or so. Um, we've been moving my grandmother in next door to my parents. So I've been like <laughs> a lot of that sort of stuff has kind of fallen to the wayside as we've just been, you know, sorting through things and moving things over there. So I, I really don't have, have much to update you on. I just um, updated my computer. I got a new um, processor motherboard built a built a new computer yesterday. Um, and it's actually really good for, um, like playing back multiple streams of video, which I do all the time when I'm editing podcasts, video podcasts, stuff like that. So I just update, update it to the newest AMD, um, 16 core processor, which is just ripping. So that's pretty much all I've got going on. <laughs> well, that's exciting. And it just goes to show you that sometimes, you know, when you prioritize family, even among your work, uh, it does take you out of the game for a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. I know you'll be back in it shortly with lots of stuff going on. So um, thanks for catching us up, Robbie. What about you? Uh, still chugging away at the radio show. Uh, I have an interview tomorrow on a guy who wrote uh, a book about Jackie Robinson and, and specifically Jackie Robinson and how um, his faith kind of inter, you know, intertwined with all of his life. Something I didn't realize, which we're going to touch on, um, is that Jackie Robinson was heavily involved in the civil rights movement, which like everybody knows him as a baseball player, but I didn't realize that he went on um, as a civil rights activist after that. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be a, a neat interview. We did the basically his birth up until uh, his first season in, in the MLB, and then we're going to cover his MLB career and, and uh, up until his death tomorrow so i'm looking forward to that that's gonna be good that sounds uh, awesome and that's on our american stories right how can people find that uh so you could just uh our website is easy enough ouramericanstories.com uh you could also just type in our american stories in google um we're on apple podcasts iHeartRadio app um spotify wherever you get your podcasts and and we're on actual radio i mean we are a radio show that happens to put out a podcast as well so if you happen to be in any of our markets Listen on there as well. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah. I can't wait. Sounds like a great story. He's a phenomenal character. I saw um, Mr. – was it Mr. Ricky Goes to Washington? Uh, it was about his manager and it's a play that I saw uh, at the Shakespeare Theater in Chicago and uh, phenomenal. It was so great. So it sounds like a great great thing you're working on. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a good one. Cool. All right. Well, you asked for a film update. Uh Buckle your seatbelts because here we go. <laughs> um, all right. So I talked to you guys before about how the Curahee Military Weekend and the donations that we raised helped us to pay for our insurance and our rights. That has been taken care of. So super excited about that news. Um, all of that now is behind us. I'm so thrilled about that. Um, and we are now in the process of figuring out how we are going to market so that everybody knows that they can buy The Girly War Freedom on Amazon, Apple TV, Vudu, uh, Vimeo On Demand, and Google Play um, as of November 1st. So we've been having a lot of meetings with uh, ben Fythen, our fearless head of business operations, um, and we're trying to figure out the best way to to market that. And along with that, one of those things is our website. So I'm so excited to announce that the Documentary First website is now up and running. Uh, it is really going to become the hub for everything we're doing. So you can find that at documentaryfirst.com. We're still working out of tweaks. It's kind of in uh, out the tweaks. It's kind of like a beta version, uh, but I'm really happy about how that's coming along. Uh, and, you know, we'll start promoting that on our social media sites as well. Um, and then... Um, 
Yeah. So the next thing that happened, this is super exciting, uh, is that we've been making progress on our Carenton project. Uh, we were having trouble getting our eighth interview into our hands. So uh, we left uh, in June uh, really not having one interview we really needed. Um, I hired Flo Plana, who hired a team to go and interview a man by the name of Monsieur Ledron. And he was a resident in Carenton during 1944, June 6th. And so they spent the whole day going around with him and interviewing him about his experience as an older child during that time. And we've been trying to download that from like an iCloud link and stuff like that. But I think because of the two countries and something like that, we've never been able to download it. The good news was Flo Plana and his wife, Jenny, if you don't know who Flo Plana is, he is the Normandy tour guide that is in our movie that interviewed World War II veterans. Um, he's been working on a documentary himself, and that documentary is called They Won't Die Twice. Uh, it is a documentary about uh, three different World War II veterans who uh, did die in battle, but we learned their stories from Flo and, um, you know, just learn about them and their families. And it's just, you know, very powerful, super moving um, documentary. Um, we were able, um, our the nonprofit arm of Documentary First, Living Stories, was able to support They Won't Die Twice uh, financially, as well as um, we help them find all the voices for the voiceovers that they need. So um, I was super excited for them. Their screening, their first U.S. screening was in um, the National D-Day uh, Memorial in Bedford, Virginia. Uh, and if you've never been there, it is a phenomenal place to visit. Uh, the whole memorial is so moving. It's really an experience the way that they have uh, laid it all out. Super thoughtful. The whole project was headed up by a World War II veteran that was at Normandy. Uh, it's just an amazing project. And I learned so much while I was there, actually, and was delighted because I got to have a tour by Jenny, Flo's wife. And the wonderful story there is Flo one day didn't know the National D-Day Memorial existed. He discovered it. Uh, he went there to get a tour. And this lovely little lady, Jenny Post, uh, gave him a tour. And boy, he was smitten right away. This woman that lived in America that knew all about D-Day. Uh, and so he make, became friends with her on Facebook. Uh, ultimately came back under the guise of interviewing veterans, uh, but stayed in that area, got to know her better. And now they're married and they have this tour company together. So they were both there. She gave us the tour. We saw the film, which was awesome. Bob and Janie Miller, who are our executive producers, showed up as well uh, to support Flo. And it was just a little mini reunion there. And at the same time, I was able to grab that footage that Flo had filmed back in June of Monsieur Ledron. And now uh, I have now downloaded it to a drive, shipped it off to Bill, and that will be our last interview that we need in order to make this sizzle reel. So um, that's just, you know, I'm just thrilled about that. And then yesterday... Uh, we got the next piece of exciting news, which is Michelle Coupe is back on the job. I think our French team, Michelle Coupe, Flavie Poisson, and Denis Vandenbrink all had a whole bunch of stuff going on in August, September, um, and the first part of October. So nobody was really able to help us translate any of our videos. Uh, but we got our first translation yesterday. Michelle sent us the translation for Jean-Pierre Loner, 
And uh, now it's in Zach's hands, which is the first time um, I think he's had an, an interview to pick through um, for Denis Vandenbrink or part of one. And now he has another one to work through to help his writing efforts, which brings us to Zach. Uh, and what we're really here to talk about today, which is um, the Carentown Project. Um, so, Zach, just talk to us a little bit. I mean, I'm going to just throw out some things here to you. We have been talking about story uh, now for like three episodes, once Robbie came on that kind of launched us into this story section. Um, and we talked about what makes a good story. Robbie, do you want to just summarize uh, what we've talked about in the last couple of episodes in regards to story? So one of the biggest parts uh, we've talked about is is a successful story is is all about the humanity of what you're telling. And it could be a person. And absolutely, of course, you can have protagonists. That's a person, but I know in the course, uh, the case of the Carentown project, um, the protagonist happens to not be a person. Um, so Zach, if you wouldn't mind talking about that and, and the story that you've crafted around this non-person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think what's interesting is, is, um, I was listening to the episode last week and, you know, Robbie, you were telling this, the story that all tied back to, uh, humanity. And I think the humanity is really, the identity of the story. So the big two things that I look at is identity and purpose. So not only the purpose of the story, but the purpose myself as a person who's writing it, you know, Christian's purpose um, for it. And then the identity. So humanity is really the identity of it. And I think that when we started on this Carenton doc, we really didn't, we couldn't find the identity of the story. You know, the girl War freedom is all about like it's driven through heart, right? And Christian talked about the purpose for a story. She talked about this last week um, for the Girl at War Freedom was to change the way people thought, right? And change people's minds and change change the way they thought about World War II. And and so when we went into this, we kind of went into it with the same idea of like the way we're going to win people over is through, you know, touching their hearts and it's going to be this emotional kind of story. And then we started looking at it, we're like, we can't find the heart. We don't have this character. We don't have this clear thing that's going to, you know, lead us to people's hearts. So we really struggled with it for a while. And we kind of went into it one day, we were having a conversation and we were just kind of hashing everything out. And the city itself got brought up and we were like, okay, this could be a starting place. And so we we hashed out a little bit and we decided, okay, this is going to be what the heart of the story is. And so we went over there, we did the interviews and that was kind of our focus and everything. And we kind of struggled to find people getting very emotional about it. Now it was a compelling story. Everyone had a compelling story, but emotion wasn't exactly what we were finding. Christian was getting really worried about it. And I was as well. And I came back and I started looking through all the footage and I was like, well, maybe, you know, we need people to relate. We need that humanity but maybe we don't need it exactly through the same way. Maybe it doesn't have to be something that hits you right in the heart right away. And so I started looking at it and I realized that we had focused on the town. We had created this world. And I was like, oh, well, that's what the purpose is. The purpose is, is to bring you into this experience and 
completely all immersive of what it was, you know, like for everyone that was in this town. And so I think there's going to be parts of it that hit your heart and it's going to be emotional at times. But I also think it's really going to bring you into this, this different experience that's almost tension building at times. Um, and it, it, it could be overwhelming almost, but I, I think it, that is really what, um, I've focused on was trying to find out a different path towards purpose and identity for the story. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we were, I, I think there's still more to be discovered. You oh, know, of course, of course. documentary is a process of thinking, you know, what the story is going to be, but really it's investigative. Like you're not a hundred percent sure how it's all going to come together. Uh, you got to see what you have, you know, filmed and captured. And we're still waiting for that. I mean, we only have one interview that's transcribed and, uh, you know, I haven't read it yet uh, actually, but Michelle was saying, you know, uh, the thing that came across with the most emotion and passion was when uh, the mayor, Jean-Pierre Loner talked about the city now and where it's going. Um, and so we know we have that captured that uh, through him, but we have, you know, seven other interviews to, to read and digest and look at. And once we get through all of those, we're going to have to see where we are at that point. What do we have with this story that will be super moving? I am personally as a filmmaker, not interested in telling the battle of Carenton or the town of Carenton story as just an X's and O's battle story. There are plenty of those things out there. That's really not where my heart is. Um, I want people just to understand the human experience like we're talking about um, and connect with this place. We did interview a historian because we wanted to understand the history of this town. And the history really is that this town is at a very uh, critical crossroads. And so Every conqueror, back to William the Conqueror, to Napoleon, uh, to Hitler, they've captured this town and then they've made this town do what they wanted it to do. And typically it was holding it hostage, creating it into this little island fortress and kind of keeping everyone out because it has these rivers that flow into it. And um, it just, from there, you have access to other places in Normandy and into France. And so uh, it's a very strategic point. But if you don't understand the land or you know the topography of the town and the strategic nature of things, it's really important to understand the story because uh, Carenton is a very complicated story. Uh, and I do feel like over the course of time, she became, I don't want to, I mean, and I guess in a sense she is, she became used for men's purposes um, that were not necessarily, that were sort of nefarious, you know, not necessarily good. They were using Carenton for their own purposes. And here you have all of these people that lived here, this beautiful town that lived here. And each time they were held, you know, sort of captive by, um, you know, people with armies and, um, you know, so I just feel like there is a lot we still have to uncover about this town, 
past, present, and future, uh, and uh, particularly about this World War II time. Because since she was liberated at that time, her future has been bright, and she has been growing in an amazing ways. Uh, it's one of the best towns to visit in Normandy because it has this central downtown with shops all around, a beautiful medieval church. It has uh, historic sites. Uh, one of the things that I love that Zach did, he took old um, archival pictures, took them to new places. They filmed B-roll of those things so we could see this then and now thing. Um, and so, I mean, I just think, again, we're searching for the story. And the more that Zach dives in, maybe it will reveal itself. I think, don't you feel, Zach, like it's this kind of marble that we're chipping away at? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I know that, you know, a great a great story is and a great storyteller is just, you know, unpeeling an onion on, you know, and there's different layers as it goes through. And so I think that, um, well, you know, we're not going to know just yet, but I think what's been interesting is how it has already been revealing itself to us. And and really, this has been a new experience for me being able to. So we went in, we wrote this outline um, and we went and filmed. But with the documentary experience, you know, we can't predict exactly how every interview is going to go. We can't um, predict exactly all the footage that we're going to get of the city. And, and you know, we did the uh, recreation um footage and you just can't predict all those things it's not like going out and uh you know for like a narrative feature your scripts like you're following this this is what it is it's, you know it's it's a blueprint and for us that's not the case and so you know since we've gotten back and i've been able to go through all of the um english interviews that we have and then now one of the french interviews and then all of the reenactment footage um, which is really incredible. I can't wait for everyone to see that. Um, it's, I've been, you know, kind of t rewriting the story almost through like the editing room. You know, it's the backside now. It's been completely different process for me. Um, I've still been focusing on the same principles, you know, purpose and identity and these things that I just talked about. Um, but from the opposite side and kind of, you know, piecing it back together with like, Oh, okay, well, let's find the story within what we already have. And then how can we take what we have and build upon that? Um, and we still have to have the correct structure and outline. But yeah, like you said, I mean, there's so many more things that could reveal itself as, as time goes on, um, because it really is like a investigative process to our final product. Yeah, now, for sure. I, I have a question because, you know, this is actually a lot of similar stuff that I do on the radio show. Do you ever find yourself like fighting your own, you know, preconceived notion? Like you think you're going one way and it reveals itself the other, but you're like, but this is the path. Like, this is the way that, that I want to go. Like, what do you ever find yourselves at that, that kind of crossroad? Oh yeah. I mean, abs absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, you definitely have like a, a preconceived notion in your head and you want to make something work. Or I also find this like the, the, the writer in me and the filmmaker in me like battling. Cause I'll see like a shot and I'll be like, this is the best shot we have. We have to find a way to get this shot into it. And then I'm like, well, it doesn't really fit with the story. And so it's like those two, you know, on each of my shoulders going back and forth, um, especially because I've spent the last like week going through all the footage, just the footage, not the story time part. And I'm like, okay, now this, this would work really well with what I have so far, but maybe I can rewrite all of that just so we can get this shot in there. And so, um, so yeah, no, it's constant. So you just kind of have to 
you know, pick at a certain point, you kind of got to, you have to be open to new things, but you kind of be like, okay, we got to stay true to what, you know, your gut. I mean, all you can do is listen to your gut. In my opinion, you, you'll know what's right. Uh, and then talk to other people, you know, I, I'll go to Christian and be like, Hey, these are kind of our two options. Like, what do you think? And then Christian, I'll discuss and maybe, you know, we can't decide yet. We kind of both, you know, so then we'll talk to someone else about it and kind of get their opinions. You know what I mean? It's a collaborative effort. Um, but I think at the end, you kind of, at least with myself, you know, I just try to trust my gut and say, I might want that, but ultimately it doesn't serve the story the way it should. Yeah, I have to say, I really love and highly recommend, I love having this relationship with you, Zach, um, because before, um, you know, I felt like so much was on my shoulders that I had to to with the girl who were freedom, you know, and I did end up writing the majority of it. There were other people that helped Julie Danis and uh, Lars Ulberg a little bit, but for the most part, it resided on my shoulders. And um, I did a lot of working that out with my editor, Bill Ebel in the edit suite. So I didn't have a lot of time, this much time to, to work with a writer like you and I are working together. And I trust you immensely. Now, a lot of it is how you've really taken the ball and run with it. Um, a perfect example is how uh, I did not tell you to go through all of the footage that we had. You did that and then now have been looking at different timestamps that will line up with ideas in your head or things that we have talked about. And in a lot of senses, you're doing pre-selections that I can then select from. Um, that's hugely important um, and feels very collaborative and awesome. And it makes me feel like you've taken ownership of what we're doing here also. Um, and, and I just love it. It's such a you know, an example to your teamwork and to your hard work. And uh, you're just a, a, an essential member of this team. And it's been great to have your partnership there. Um, Robbie, to answer your question, uh, I have an example of exactly what you're talking about. When I initially did my investigative journalism for The Girl Who Wore Freedom, I wanted to understand, like, this was what what really drove me to make the girl who wore freedom. I'd gotten to Normandy and I had seen this incredible love from these people. I mean, they were just so jubilant. Everything was draped in American flags and they treated me like I had liberated Normandy just because I was an American. And this was at that time, 71 years ago. And I really wanted to get at the bottom of why were they so grateful? Why were they still celebrating this 71 years later? And my assumptions were that the Germans were so bad that they were so happy to be free, right? Fits the narrative. We've all heard about the terrible Nazis, right? You win any argument when you pull out the Nazis, right? So um, they are terrible. I'm kind of joking, but um, but I truly thought that that was why they were so thankful, because the Nazi experience for the four years that they were occupied must have been so traumatic, meaning they did horrible things. They shot people or they, you know, stole from them or they whatever the horrible, they raped all their girls, whatever it was. I thought it was these horrible things. And I started trying that was what I was going to ask people, you know, what horrible things happened? What bad things did the Germans do? And in my mind, that was where the story was going to go. And every time I asked a French per person what it was like during the four years of the occupation, they all said the same thing. They all said the Germans were correct. I was like, what the heck does that mean? Like, 
that doesn't make any sense. The Germans were correct. And it took me a while to, to realize that what they meant were they were living in this uneasy peace. They, the, and this is only in Normandy because it was the Wehrmacht soldiers and it was usually the older soldiers or the younger ones or those that were injured. None of them wanted to be there. They wanted to be back home with their children and their grandchildren, their parents, and they didn't want to be there. They had to be there. And the French people didn't want them there, but they were all thrust into this situation and they had to coexist. And so, you know, they all had to live together, sometimes even in the same house or down the street. Uh, and interestingly enough, in St. Marie du Mont, where Danny grew up, Papa Paul was the German that lived down the street that babysat her so her mother could go and sell milk in the town of Carenton. Uh, oftentimes he felt so bad for her that she didn't have food, he would give her sugar water. So their memories weren't of the Germans being bad. And in fact, when a tank was rolling down off of Utah Beach into the city of St. Marie du Mont, and the um, French people were standing outside watching this parade, um, Danny's father saw this big tank coming and he saw that it was going to roll over the body of a German soldier. And so he went and pulled the German soldier out from under the tank, um, just as respect for dignity of life. And I did not expect that. So that all of that did not fit what I thought the story I thought I was going to tell. And in the end, their gratitude stemmed from the fact that <sighs> The oppression that they felt and the horribleness that they felt for those four years was not necessarily because the Germans did these horrible things to them, but they were always there, constantly present, constantly watching over them. Their lights had to be turned out at a certain time. Uh, they always had to show papers where they were going to go anyplace. They had to make sure not to do anything wrong or bad to get themselves into trouble. It was just this oppressiveness of this presence that was uninvited uh, in your homes and in your town. And, um, and even though they lost so many lives during the Allied invasion or liberation, um, that gratitude for that being liberated and being free was what drove them. So it was not what I expected to hear in the beginning. It's not the story I thought I was going to tell, but you go down this investigative journey and you figure out what the story is as it reveals itself. So, yeah, that's my answer to your question. Well, <laughs> I mean, how would you expect those things going in? Yeah, you just don't. So, Zach, what's been the hardest thing about crafting a good story, whether it's this one or another one you work on? You went to script writing school. What did they what did they yeah. teach you? Well, I, I mean, I think the number one thing for me is, first off, just making sure that, like, I want to be telling the story and, like, why the story is important to, like, me to begin with. And I don't think... Like, I think if you aren't invested in it yourself, and that kind of goes back to, like, the identity that I write, it's like the identity of the, the storyteller, um, like, not just the story, but, like, what, what about the story compels me? Like, wow. And I think going into it, I was like, I, I think if originally if we back it up a little bit and we go to the Brave Dutch, which was the first thing that I kind of was given, 
I was interested right away just because it's a fascinating story, but like the, the chase and time element is like two of my like favorite, just like things to write about or read about or watch or anything like that. So right away I was like, Oh, I see my connection to this. The more I did research, the more I became like emotionally invested, but right away I had something that like drew me in. So I was like, okay, well I understand where I can connect. And then with the Carrington project, I was like, I mean, it's super interesting, but like what separates it? Like what, you know, like what we had, we said, you know, at these desks multiple times and had this conversation. And then once I went and was able to experience it, then like you said, it would, you were right. Uh, you know, it changed everything. And I, I was able to experience that. And then for me, it became, well, maybe everyone isn't going to be able to go and go to Carenton and go to Normandy. And so, and, you know, unfortunately, realistically, you know, we're only going to have so many veterans left for so much longer. And so to be able to, you know, kind of capture that became like the purpose to me was like, I want other people to be able to experience what I experienced. And that may not be realistic for much longer, you know? And so being able to take that and kind of capture it, became my purpose and story. And so I think once I was able to find, you know, my purpose, my identity within it, then I was able to make that next leap. Um, because it's, you can very often try to fake yourself and try to convince yourself. Um, but if it's not authentic, then it's not going to be good in my opinion. I think like that authentic, that like it needs to be authentic. And so if it's not, then, um, People are going to see through that. And I think that's what separates a good story from a, from a bad story. And I think it's the most challenging part, like you said. But if you're able to find that, um, then you know you're telling the right story. Mm. And I think there's something special about when you, when you start to care about a story you initially didn't, you know you found something special. Right. Um, and I think you're able to convey even more of that emotion because it's, it's something that you've discovered rather than something you already – you know, already known about and cared about. Yeah. That's and a super good point. Yeah. Well, it's like, and also you don't want it to come off as like uh, selfish, but if you're not invested in it, then, you know, why should someone else be invested in it? It's the way like I feel about it. And like, there's different purpose. Like for this, we are talking about a more like, you know, something more serious and more like, you know, emotionally gripping, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, like, Jason, you make those comedy shorts, right? Like your purpose for that is to make people laugh. But then at the same time, there's like more like each one you make, you're like, well, the purpose is because I want to make a point about this, which is actually funny. And so there's like, there's more to it doesn't have, you know, I mean, everything has a purpose. And then if you are like, man, I think this is hilarious. Other people are going to think, think it's funny. But if you're like, oh, well, maybe other people will think this is funny then people are gonna be like, ah, like they may, it may not work as well. And so that's why I've always tried to be like, if I think it's good, other people are going to think it's good. Like right. um, if I'm interested in it, other people will. Does this kind of go along with the old saying, the old adage you hear, which is right what you know? Um, you know, here it's not exactly what you know intellectually because you didn't know a lot about this when you came in. But since then you've you know, it's interested you enough. Now you do know this subject matter and you, your passion for it is moving you. Yeah. I mean, right. What, you know, um, 
I've always liked the term, you know, write what you would want to watch, write what you would want to read. Like for me, that was, I, some, I read, someone said that at some point that I came across it when I was in school. And it was just like, I want to, it was a director that was like, I want to make a movie that I want to watch. I don't care if anyone else wants to watch it. And like, I think that if you were that passionate about something, I mean, that's why the girl that wore freedom yeah. works, because it's like your passion is clear through watching the film and other people are instantly drawn to that. So true. So true. Yeah. Robbie, that's what I love when I listen to you talk about the stories that you're working on is you do get excited and passionate about about what you're doing. So it makes me excited uh, to, yeah. to hear the story you're telling. Actually, there's there's fun from another story that I'm working on. I'm actually working on the story of the first uh, three episodes, oh, five, five, six or four, five, six of Star Wars. Um, and I interviewed a guy who wrote a book of, you know, episodes, you know, five through six. And it, it covers everything really up until this current uh, point. And it was actually that's why Lucas created Star Wars, because he went to the uh, with Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars. He went to the he like looked at what was playing. And he's like. I don't want to see any of these movies. <laughs> and he, and so he turns to Gary Kurtz and they'd grown up with, um, Oh, what was it? Um, Flash Gordon. Mm. He grew up with Flash Gordon and they're like, we don't have a Flash Gordon nowadays. So Lucas went to go buy the rights to uh, Flash Gordon, couldn't get them. And he's like, eh, maybe I'll create my own space opera. And like he, he wrote what it, the movie that he wanted to see, which is ironic because it ended up being like, nothing he's like yeah maybe i got like 50 percent of it right and everybody's like what do you mean 50 percent? like you've completely changed filmmaking for forever <laughs> so, so the moral of that story is be the movie you want to see in the world <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a quote graphic somebody give us a quote graphic jason did you come up with that on your own <laughs> yes okay yeah. quote by jason rugg needs to go on our social media i'll put it on a t-shirt <laughs> or a t-shirt sounds good well jason you uh write as well mm -hmm. your writing is different it's shorter it's usually yeah. funny um <laughs> we talk try about writing from your point of view yeah i think um one thing that my my partner and i really have in common is kind of a disdain for social media. And so like, that's where most of our comedy comes from is just like the fake selves that we put on for social media and that it's really you the, know, though you are on social media yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, that's part of it is kind of like, I'm on it so that I can see it and kind of like Twitter's the only one I like. I don't really like Instagram. I don't really like Facebook. I don't, I don't really do anything else. Um, and it's primarily through that, that a lot of the comedy comes from. I think that comedy really comes from your, how you perceive yourself and how others perceive you. And so like you think of most comedic moments in a movie are someone thinking they're coming off one way, but actually coming off another way. That's what most comedic television shows are about. And so, uh, social media is the place where you can control that you know, in every single way, right? The only thing that goes out on social media is what you want it to be. And so you have complete control over it. That's where a lot of the comedy I think comes from is people putting stuff up on social media and thinking, Oh, this is cool. This is normal. And it's not. And so a lot of it is skewering that that's where a lot of the comedy comes from for us. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but in writing, like, I mean, I've watched a lot of your stuff on Instagram, mm-hmm. which you hate, but yeah. uh, I'm watching a lot of that <laughs> stuff. Um, and that doesn't directly call out Instagram, I mean, no. or call out social media. It's more what you're, I mean, talk to me about that writing process. How do you come up with that stuff? Yeah, it's more kind of just the general vibe of how disingenuous people are on social media. The, the fake self that you put out there, that's more what we're really skewering. So it's not that someone's posting about it or whatever. It's that we're skewering the people who pretend to be something else. Like, so how do you get your content? By scrolling social media and having ideas. <laughs> you just you, you you look at what other people are doing, and yeah, you get ideas from. Oh, yep, that's yeah, that's someone also who just so ingrained in people like our age that it's just like yeah. you, it's hard to even. I don't have you, Jason. Have you seen uh, the Triangle of Sadness? The uh, no. It, so on the Palm the Orlist here, and uh, the first act is like in three acts, and the first act is like basically completely just making fun of people it, you would love it it's basically, oh, yeah, it's basically exactly what you're talking about, um, <laughs> about like rich instagram hot people making fun of them and it's hilarious. oh my gosh i love it <laughs> it doesn't happen to be a documentary does it because that could slide us right into our new it's segment not, which is no longer deja vu <laughs> All right, let's hop right in to our new segment, DocuView Deja Vu. DocuView Deja Vu. All right, I'm going to go first today. I saw this really interesting documentary, um, short, 50-something minutes. Uh, It's called the Martha – I cannot believe the name of the title and the the name of the woman just went out of my head. Uh, The Martha Miller Effect? Uh, I don't think that's right. So I'm going to have to Google this. So (laughs) you're going to have to go first, Jason. Martha Mitchell effect. Thank you. All right. So I'll tell tell it now. Martha Mitchell effect. So this is a woman, Martha Mitchell, who was just a key central figure figure in the Watergate hearings. Uh, I didn't know about her at all. Uh, And she is wonderful. Uh, She's just full of life and... Uh, she create. She's like a disruptor in that whole political industry, and she really was kind of hated and called out and um, got a really bad rap. And in the end, um, was treated horribly uh, by the Republican Nixon administration. And in the end, I will just say there was someone that sent some flowers, and uh, the display said Martha was right. And that's really kind of what happened in the end. She did end up being right. Um, I think the thing that was the saddest for me um, is that she died shortly after everything happened, just of natural causes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not really – that's not the end of the story. It's not really giving anything away. But I thought, gosh, you know, she just really didn't get to enjoy the fact that she had been vindicated really by circumstances. And I felt very bad for her, but uh, the Martha Miller effect can be found on Netflix. It's a short documentary. I recommend it for your history brain. Um, And I did think it was interesting how they told the story. Um, Wasn't the, you know, most high quality documentary I've ever seen, but it certainly was interesting. Loved all the archival stuff. Um, Recommend it. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I can go next. Yeah. Um, 
Mine is also a short documentary. It's only 12 minutes long, um, but I watched it because I also watched the um, narrative film adaptation of it, The Greatest Beer Run Ever. Yeah. Um, it's out on Apple+. Plus. Isn't that Smokey and the Bandit? No. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> this is similar. <laughs> very similar. Very similar stakes, too. Uh, no, no, no. Um, so it's a fascinating story, true story of a guy who lived in New York city and he was a, he was a vet and he, he had friends over in Vietnam and he goes, I'm going to bring him a beer. And he traveled all the way. It took like a year round trip. He went to the front lines. He handed out beers that he brought with him from New York city. And so the short documentary is all of them getting back together and talking about that. And it's just 12 minutes. It's a really fun little documentary. The movies also, really really uh fun um <laughs> christian we did it for the the movie proposal this last week sky hated it <laughs> but i really liked it <laughs> so i, I don't know <laughs> but yeah i would Josh definitely recommend think? he's always the tiebreaker sometimes yeah he was kind of in the middle he was kind of okay. in the middle he's like yeah it's it's good it starts a conversation you know that sort of thing but yeah oh, I, that's I, awesome i really enjoyed now, you, it you so. got a two for today a veteran mm-hmm. documentary for yep. documentary. that's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right thank you all right, Robbie, you're up. Well, my first one uh, that I had was uh, the Sparks Brothers, which is about a music group you've never heard of, but all of your favorite musicians have heard of. Uh, this one is uh, a 2008 documentary, The Wrecking Crew. Um, and this is about a group of music- musicians you probably have heard of. And I didn't write all the songs down that they played on, but they have played on, like, um, it opens up with... Um, Oh, what is it? Uh, Good Vibrations and the recording session from Good Vibrations. I mean, they were the Pet Sounds band uh, for that Beach Brothers, uh, Beach Brothers, Beach Boys um, album. They, I mean, they they played for on all those Phil Spector records back in the sixties, seventies. I mean, if you look up the Wrecking Crew and look up their, unfortunately, the the recording credits, um, they didn't get it. But like the Monkees, they played all the Monkees stuff. Um, the monkeys didn't play their own stuff. They were actors playing musicians. Um, and they played all of that. I mean, they, uh, wrote for Sonny and Cher. They wrote, uh, or played for Sonny and Cher. Glenn Campbell was in the wrecking crew. Um, but like th- this is a quote from Dick Clark, who's in the, the, um, documentary that sums it all up. And he basically said, <clears throat> nobody cared. All they wanted was the product. They just wanted the name and the sales uh, who created it. Nah, that doesn't, that was incidental. Um, but I mean, these guys, they're, they're in like every hit from the sixties and seventies. Like it's, it's, if, if you, music in, history interests you at all, uh, the wrecking crew is totally worth it. And it's by, um, one of the guy, the guitarist who's in like, he re- played the Bonanza theme song, uh, Batman theme song, uh, was, uh, uh, what's the Sinatra song that, uh, him and his daughter did, um, full, uh, Funny, funny face or uh, my funny Foolish. laughing face. What is that? I don't, I don't know. But the the Spanish guitar at the beginning of that, he's and the, that guy's son is the one who produced this thing. And it took, it was like it was an eight year project. I think it started in 1998. They finished it in 2006. Got all the music rights, though, like in 2013. So, I mean, this is a labor of love that this guy did for his father. Um, and it's really cool. Just kind of like archiving these studio musicians who have like played on all of these songs that you would have never guessed they were on. 
Gosh, I that sounds right at my alley. I love music documentaries. That's oh, awesome. and it's on Hulu. Ah, thank you. Good to know. Yes. All right. Well, Zach, we didn't ask you to prepare a documentary, but do you have one? Oh, yeah, I'm prepared. Well, first off, <laughs> I want to say, there we go. last week or two weeks ago, when Robbie was like talking about to go see the Sparks Brothers doc, he was like, oh, yeah, I saw it in Memphis. And I was like, I also, because I live in Memphis. I don't know if you know that, Robbie, but I live in I Memphis. do, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, I saw a screening of that as well in Memphis. So Robbie and I- In East Memphis? Memphis? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure at the yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I went to Wiseacre beforehand. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys were both there at the same time. I mean, they did not multiple screens, but it was only yeah. like one weekend. So I mean, it it could have been. Yeah. I, mean, I was listening to it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, it's, love that dog." Oh, oh wait, wait, we might have been there at the same time. So. <laughs> that is the second time I've been with you, Zach. I know a were... lot of people. Look, I don't know a stranger, all right? So, I mean. <laughs> Randomly. I, I, did we talk about the story where Zach yeah. found uh, on, oh, that one to me is great. That's great. Robbie, you'll have to listen to the episode where we talk about Grace, who was in, in our crew in June. Great yeah, story. All, anyway. the, all the post-Carenton yeah. uh, uh, stories. But anyways, so I um, was preparing, since I was had been writing all this stuff and going back through footage. I was trying to think of like docs that I just like loved, like the editing style from and stuff like that. Um, and so I had not watched all of it, but in college I was shown a clip of uh, F for fake, the uh, 1973 Orson Welles, like docudrama. It's like hybrid of like a documentary slash, like a little bit of like reenactments. And so basically Orson Welles, in his late years, he narrates and he's like in a lot of it. He's with his big beard, smoking cigars and drinking wine all throughout Europe. But he's discovering, I mean, it's just, just for that alone, it's worth watching. I'm telling you, but uh, it's super interesting because he follows these two basically frauds. So it is a, a art, like a guy who forges art, basically, well, the best to ever do it, a bunch of Picassos and stuff like that. And then on the same island in, of Ibiza, at the same time, um, this autobiography gets written about um, Howard Hughes, and it's like, comes out as phony. And Orson Welles just happens to be like, kind of tied into this. But really, that's not what the doc is about at all. It's really about Orson going through the idea of being phony and what fake is and what is real and this whole idea and you can tell it it literally opens on him doing a magic trick for a child and then it like starts into the doc and throughout the entire thing you cannot tell what is a documentary what is real what is true and i mean he's really like contemplating with this idea and i just think it's so interesting and i mean like he opens with this optical illusion, but then the whole time he's basically being like film itself is an illusion. Like none of this is real, but like it feels like it's real. And it's just, and he talks about himself and how his career started off basically on being a phony, being a fake, because the way he became famous was this like radio show where they acted like aliens were coming in Um and people thought it was real and like freaked out. And this brought him into fame. And then he pulls off Citizen Kane, which every shot in Citizen Kane feels like it's like, I mean, if you watch Citizen Kane, every shot, you're like, how did they do this? Like how everything is 
an optical illusion in that, like everything. And so, and then he's at the top of the world at 24 and then his whole career is just like, I mean, you can tell he's kind of struggling with this, this idea of like, am I a phony? Am I like, what is that? What does it mean to film? Uh, it's so fascinating if you're interested in film and filmmakers and anyone like that. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. It's also just like, yet again, the reason I was brought back to it was because of the editing. The editing is absolutely unreal. Um, the storytelling, everything like that is just like, I mean, it's top class filmmaking. I mean, Wells is one of the best to ever do it. And so is it, it's F is for fate? S, F for fake. F for fate. Because, you know, that sounds a lot like a doc I watched on Netflix called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Have you heard of this one? um, Is it also? Yes. Jason, what were you going to say? No, I haven't seen it. Sorry. Okay. So They'll Love Me When I'm (laughs) Dead is a documentary about Hmm. (laughs) – I mean, I don't even know how to to explain it, but it – I'm just going to read this. Um, Okay. So this is painstakingly stitched together. The movie remains a mildly intriguing mess, and it is a mess, Um, and far less worthwhile than the accompanying documentary about it and the later stages of his career, which is They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And it's him making – it's the documentary of him making – other side of the wind, I think, and working on it. And it was sort of like his last big thing. This and is everything just Peter Bogdanovich helped out and stitched together, right? I yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's just crazy. It's, you know, Orson Welles in his later life, like you said, with, you know, he's kind of all hang out with the cigars and the, you know, drinks and the doubt and just old footage that makes no sense. <laughs> But it's just, it's fascinating. It sort of looks like you you lift open the head of Orson Welles and you can kind of see the muddled creative mess that's in his head. Uh, and it, it really does make you sit back and ponder, like there's genius there clearly, but there's also madness too, you know, aren't they like twins? Um, but you see that in They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Yeah, seems like a similar, similar kind of thing. Super, super interesting though. And uh, F for Fake is on HBO Max right now for anyone that wants to watch it. Beautiful. Great. Well, all right. Are we ready to wrap up? Anything ready else? Ready to wrap. Any last minute? Okay, here we go. Oh, ooh, <laughs> real oh, yeah, quick. See, see? This is what I, I asked. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, so as, you know, as Christian mentioned earlier, uh, the re-release is coming. Um, and yes, there are the marketing efforts and all that, but the, a lot of this is will the important like grassroots stuff um, that we have to keep in mind that like, so all you listeners, um, if you own it on a platform, when it gets re- re- relaunched on that on November, November 1st. 1st, November 1st. So everybody, if you don't have it, pre-order it. Um, but if you do have it, when the re- relaunch, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, but like all our reviews are wiped out on these platforms, right? Yeah. So when um, it was taken off iTunes, all we lost all of our reviews and we had, you know, all five stars. We had amazing reviews. I wish I would have copied them down. Um, but we are going to need more people to rate and review, watch, rate and review, particularly on iTunes, Apple TV 
and Amazon, because then that bumps us up into to yeah. the algorithms and it just really helps us all the way around. So uh, if people could do that and then share it with other people. And by the way, we're not calling this the re- relaunch or the re-release. This is like our real release. So you don't need to the tell anybody release. it's, you know, half <laughs> <them before>. yeah. <laughs> just, uh, Share it with friends, push it out like this. Get the word out. Like you, you listeners are, are going to be a big part of this. Yeah, you guys are our foot soldiers. You're the most loyal people to this project. Um, we appreciate your support on Patreon, those of you that are there. Uh, we got a couple of fun things coming out for you in the near future. We've been thinking about you, thankful for you. Uh, so we've got some stuff we're working on. Um, yeah. And so you can pre order now on Amazon, Apple TV, iTunes. I think that's it. Uh, you can leave reviews there. Um, so go do it. Yes, please. Well, all right. And so after you do that, then I'll thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you could be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. See ya. See ya. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarefreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.